Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, September 23rd, 2016. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have our full complement today. Doug, Erica, Tiffany, Gabby, and Elliot. Hey, everybody. Hello. Hey, guys. So, uh, today we're going to be talking about the microbiome. Topic of our show is some of my best friends are germs, which is true. Uh, so the human body is teeming with billions, nay, trillions of microbes with over a thousand different species populating the gut alone. Uh, we are covered with bacteria, fungi, viruses, and parasites from the top of our heads to the bottom of our feet, inside and out. So how did we come to be populated with such a vast array of these little beasties, and what is their purpose? What influence do they exert on our physical and mental health? And more importantly, what can we do and what can we avoid doing? to keep our microbial community happy and in balance. Uh, so today we're going to take a look at the role uh, that these microbiota play, uh, and we're going to learn how to create poo that you can be proud of <laughs> and, <laughs> and help your microbiome work in your favor. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, this may be gross for some people, but try not to let the modern antibacterial culture take over your mind uh, today because we're going to delve right into it. So uh, I guess let's start with we, we have a clip um, that Tiffany found for us uh, that is just a, a general overview of why uh, the microbiome is good, what the beneficial aspects are. So let's uh, let's check that out and then we'll, we'll come back and discuss and get into this. Yeah, this is from uh, BioNaut. Uh, a researcher of the human microbiome. His name is Jeroen Reis. And this is a little talk that he gave. So, so you think you're human. There's 7 billion people on this planet. You know how many microbes there are? Five non-million. Five non-million. That's the number of stars in the universe multiplied by five million. That's a lot of bacteria. And they're everywhere. They're on this floor. They're in your kitchen sink. They're on your chair. They're on your coffee cup. And yes, they're on you. You harbor a hundred trillion bacteria in and on your body right now. That's only a thousand times the number of individuals on this planet. And if you look at it in terms of cells, you are outnumbered 10 to 1. You are not human. You are a walking bacterial colony. We have several commensal floras, or commensal microbiotas, as we call them. You have your skin flora, your oral flora, your genital flora, and most famously, your gut flora. And these floras are numerous, but they're good for you. They help you digest your food, they protect you against pathogens, they provide you with essential nutrients such as vitamins, and they train your immune system. And most importantly, if something goes wrong with your flora, something is wrong with you. 
So we scientists, we've, in the last few years, we've discovered new techniques to study the, the gut flora or the gut microbiome at great resolution. And so we start off from a sample from, from your flora. We extract all the microbes. We extract all the DNA from these microbes. We throw that into one of those sequencing devices, and we learn something about that ecosystem, because it's an ecosystem. We learn what microbes live there, and we learn what these microbes can do, what genes they have in their collective genome. And we've learned that our microbiome, so the collective genome, contains a hundred times more genes than we have. We have a second genome active in and on our bodies. And we've learned that you can sort of classify the, the gut flora into three kinds, three corners of ecosystem space. And we've called them entrotypes. And so to, to give you a better feeling what these entrotypes are, I often make the, 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 the what's the word? <laughs> the comparison, thank you, uh, with an ecosystem, right? With a forest, you have tropical forests, you have temperate forests, you have bamboo forests. They're all forests, but you have different species living together and functioning as a unit. You have constellations that work optimally, and that's what I think these constellations in your gut flora are like. And so the environment that these bacteria live in, they determine these constellations, it seems. And the environment in the gut is the food that you eat. And so people have discovered that the, the people that have more fat in their food or more protein in their food or more carbohydrate in their food, they have different gut compositions. And that's important because more and more diseases are linked to disturbances of your gut flora. Diarrhea, diabetes, obesity, atherosclerosis, colitis, Crohn's disease, even autism all have been associated with disturbed gut floras. And it's not merely associations. Bad gut floras can actually cause disease. If you take the flora of an obese mouse and you put it into a germ-free mice, so one that doesn't have a flora, that germ-free mouse becomes obese. So we're thinking, right? So we, we, can, we, can, we can learn something from this flora about your personal health. We're moving towards diagnosing people on the contents of your gut. And so this, this is being done, for example, for diabetes or for colon cancer. But we can do this in everyday life. We can go towards a long life, lifelong health monitoring of your gut flora from the obvious material. And when I mean lifelong, I mean lifelong. Because your gut flora is seeded at birth. Babies are born sterile. And it's only when they get born, they are inoculated by the flora of the mother. The skin flora, the vaginal flora, the fecal flora. That's when it happens, that moment. And so messing with the flora in early life can have serious consequences. And we're starting to understand more and more how serious these consequences can be. Babies that are born by C-section have different floras than babies that are born vaginally. 
Babies that have been breastfed have different floras than babies that have been formula fed. We don't really know which one is better. We just see the differences at the moment. But we know that babies, or, or for example, in, again from mouse experience, mouse, mice that have had low dosage of, of antibiotics at very early age at the, have a disturbed flora at adulthood and they become obese. And low dosages of antibiotics at early age has been linked to things like asthma. So we have to start thinking and be very careful about the usage of antibiotics. I'm not pleading against antibiotics, but we should be very careful. Also, in adults, this matters. If you get a normal dose of broad-spectrum antibiotics, some of you will recover after a few weeks. The gut flutter will recover after a few weeks. Some of you, for some of you, it'll take months. For some of you, it could take over a year for your gut flora to become normal or what it was again. Right? And some of the people, they never recover. They have permanently altered their gut flora. Again, there's so many unknowns in our field. We don't really know what the effects of this are, but we are just seeing that the consequences are important. And so we can also think of modulating your flora, resetting your flora. Right? There's now a new thing called fecal... Well, it's not a new thing, actually. It's, it's pretty old. Bedouins have used it for ages. But fecal, fecal transfer, transplanting a flora of a healthy individual into a diseased individual actually seems to work as a therapy in some diseases. Right? And it's not only disease. The gut flora influences behavior, influences brain development. Experiments in mice, in mice are now showing that anxiety behavior or explorative behavior of mice is determined by what flora they have. In Drosophila, the flora has shown to be influencing mating behavior, sexual preference. So, think about it. Or, is it you who is thinking? So, take home messages. I only have two. One is, take care of your friends. But the second one is, you never have to feel lonely ever again. <laughs> Thank you. I didn't get the part where since when is a fecal transplant being used? The Bedouin. I'm interested to know the when. When? Said it was oh, there's um, episodes like if you have a very severe like uh, gastrointestinal infection called C. diff or C. difficile, classic clostridium mm. difficile that causes severe diarrhea. A lot of older people get it. Uh, people get it in hospitals after they've been given, like, uh, very strong antibiotics, and it can be very, very difficult to treat, and they pull out, like, the big guns like vancomycin to try to treat yeah. it, and sometimes it's not successful, so they might turn to a fecal transplant if they know about it. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. But I do have to uh, point out, like, in this talk, 
he said that babies' guts, when they're born, that they're sterile. There's actually been yeah. research that came out. <clears throat> it says that um, they're not sterile. Like the unborn baby will start to develop its own microbiome during the later stage of pregnancy. Um, the baby starts to swallow amniotic fluid and it takes in the mother's microbiota from the placenta. So babies' guts aren't necessarily mm-hmm. sterile when they're born. And I think that uh, the like the vaccine industry will try to capitalize on that, but kind of justifying why they need to give vaccines when a baby is first born because they're so vulnerable, mm-hmm. but they're not as vulnerable as they make it seem. On um, the contrary, well, the- you, will, you will think that the Sorry, vaccine, Gabby, the, the first, uh, the newborn vaccine will actually disrupt their little, you know, microbiome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what I found most interesting about that was how it actually mentioned that it's only during the late stages of gestation um, that the baby is actually developed enough to be able to swallow the surrounding am- amniotic fluid. Um, and, and it also stated that if a baby is born prematurely, then they miss out on this, this opportunity. And so they would naturally have a less developed immune system or um, less bacterial diversity. Yeah. Yeah. Even more reason not to insult them with the vaccine. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, when mothers, um, they make a culture of their vagina flora, if it comes back positive for a bacteria called Streptococcus galactiae, which has been related with meningitis in newborns, they actually give antibiotics to the mothers before birth and even during birth. That will wipe out all the flora and possibly the babies too, I will guess. So that's pretty mm-hmm. bad. Yeah, I found it interesting, too, talking about the difference between uh, vaginal birth and then cesarean. So mm-hmm. when they just cut the mom open and pull the baby out, there's, um, you know, they don't get that initial hit, if you will, of all the the good um, bacteria that they need to kind of start building their immune system. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Also interesting about um, breast milk. And how uh, important breastfeeding is because the um, they're not only the, you know the mother is transferring some of her, um, her microbiota to the baby through breast milk, but then there's also stuff in the breast milk like certain um, sugars that the baby actually doesn't even use. the The sole purpose for it is actually to feed the, um, the bacteria that the the in the baby's digestive system. Mm-hmm. So you know all these different. Um, uh, companies and stuff that are making like uh, infant formulas and stuff. It just shows how inferior those infant formulas actually are. Like, never mind the nutritional deficiencies that are inherent in it, but all these different components like the probiotics, those sugars I was talking about, those things are all missing as well. So it's almost like from the ground up, um, we have a completely backward view of childbirth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I admit that uh, I don't know much if anything at all about childbirth uh what this makes me wonder is the is the uh is the hyper sterile environment actually um beneficial you know for childbirth or you know is is there something to be said for like home births where it's not necessarily like a hospital environment in in that regard 
Well, I, first I would just take issue with you calling a hospital hypersterile. <laughs> it's yeah. one of the yeah. germiest yeah. places ever. <laughs> but the good thing about um, being born vaginally and, you know, being breastfed is like all of the the antibodies that the mother passes on to the baby is specifically tailored to the environment that the baby is going to be spending its first months of life in. Mm-hmm. And so, it's, it's also point. the mom is passing down my mitochondrial DNA. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so it's like the building blocks of life. And I have a whole theory on the whole hospital birth versus home birth thing. But I think the sterile environment is this sense of wanting to control this relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea that, you know, the mom only plays half the role when. You know, science is showing that, you know, uh, most of your genetic information is maternal in origin and it's setting up that Mm -hmm. relationship. One thing that was interesting we're talking about before the show is when a baby's born, it's covered in what's called vernix. And it's like Mm -hmm. um, almost like a Vaseline cheesy like coating all over the skin. And for many years, uh, nurses would make a point to, you know, wash the baby as soon as it was born and get all that. It's like in their hair and stuff Mm -hmm. and try and scrub that off. And now they're realizing that that is the building block of of positive bacteria. That's all the bacteria from the mother building in the skin, one of the largest organs of the body. Mm -hmm. Basically, you know, the future of that child's immune system so now, at least in home births, what a lot of midwives do is they, they rub it in almost like a, like a lotion for the baby and they don't wash the baby right after it's born. Mm. And a mm-hmm. lot of times they're also not cutting the cord right away too because mm-hmm. there's some important exchange going on there. I mean, imagine being in a sack for 10 months in water and you come out and the whole experience can be very traumatic and then just sterilizing the whole environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And what's that you're saying about, uh, or Gabby, you're saying about <laughs> enemas, giving a mom enema before she gives birth? <laughs> it's a, it's a, a tradition to do an enema. If you're going to give birth, you want to do it as clearly as possible. So as soon as you're ready to go into, you know, for action, <laughs> I have an enema before, so you won't poop there on the <laughs> on the birth. At, at, um, yes, and um, when I came here to these to the current town where I'm uh, where I'm practicing medicine, uh, the nurses made a point that no, it was not necessary to give an enema. It was actually better if there was poop all over. <laughs> okay, oh, <boy. laughs> it's not me. <laughs> so, but it kind of goes back to that. Me. That whole thing yeah. of like sterilizing the whole process and like it's dirty or there's something wrong. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like instead of, you know, women have been doing this for thousands of years. I, I think that nature knows how to set up the whole system to work in the, in the, the favor of the child surviving. Yeah. Totally. And, and just uh, getting and back to, to just getting back to the whole idea that you know the, the the hospitals try for this totally sterile environment where they're trying to um, you know eliminate the possibility that there's any kind of infection. Well, there was a, an article we looked into for this um, for this show called "Microbiomes of Corpses: ICU pac- Patients 
helpful gut bacteria are depleted within days of hospital admission. And it's just talking about how, um, you know, they were looking at patients who had gone into the ICU and they would take a look at, you know, their, their microbiota beforehand and after. Um, and when one quote from the study said they saw a rapid rise of organisms clearly associated with disease. In some cases, those organisms became 95% of the entire gut flora, all, all made up Whoa. of uh, pathogenic taxa within days of admission to the ICU. And there's a That's quote from the article. The research, it says the researchers reported that some of the patient's microbiomes resembled the microbiomes of corpses. <laughs> Whoa. That's just from a trip to the hospital. Now, I mean, you know, I, I guess probably what's going on is that they're, they're, you know, undergoing antibiotic treatment and that's wiping out all their beneficial flora. And then they're just picking up whatever's in the environment. There's just going to be any of these pathogenic uh, things. But I mean, these, the, uh, the, these were sorry. intensive care unit patients. It's pretty dramatic yeah. if you've ever been on an intensive care unit. It is the most artificial place you'll find in a hospital. Everybody's plugged into some sort of tube in their mm. mouths, in their, in their bronchi, in for the urine, for everything. There's a tube in every single hole you have on your body. Yep. And uh, <laughs> pretty much... <laughs> And Jeez. I'm not surprised to hear that they have zero flora after like a couple of days or even 24 hours. And it's actually well, interesting that they have done studies in intensive care unit that if, the, if you give patients their probiotics, they will have less mortality. Well, you yeah, have to I consider too, like to even end up in the ICU, you got to be pretty sick. So I'm guessing hmm. that these people that went into the ICU probably didn't have healthy gut flora in the first place. And then having a tube in every orifice really doesn't help matters <laughs> much either. <laughs> or hospital food. Yeah. And um, Well, in and ICU, that, they like them like no, pretty drugged. Like if they move around too much, <laughs> the nurses get a little nervous. So a lot of them yeah. aren't really eating much. Or if they do, they're being tube fed or fed like through a tube through their nose. So, yeah, it's yeah. bad situation all around. Right. And with that statistic that Doug just mentioned, it's worth to bear in mind that some experts actually claim that um, the benef beneficial bacteria in your gut make up as much as 80 to 90% of the immune system. Yeah. Right. So people are going to the intensive care unit in order to get better when, in fact, they may be actually completely destroying their innate immune system. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I was going to ask it, you know, is, do you think that the uh, the explosion of all the, the autoimmune disorders w would have something to do with our, our kind of war against bacteria that's going on these days? Oh, yeah. I mean, you can mm -hmm. even think of it in terms of starting with the whole birth process. You know, that if uh, if the children are being sterilized the day that they're born or moments after their body isn't able to start to pick up ways to fight off bacteria. And then if you mm -hmm. go on through childhood where, you know, make sure you wash your hands, don't go out and play in the dirt, you know, use this yeah. antibacterial soap. Uh, there's a story on SOT about this lady. She had two kids and she had lived on a small farm and her kids would be chasing chickens and putting dirt in their mouths. And one time she saw one of her kids like wallowing in a trough of pig waste. <laughs> but her kids <laughs> never got <laughs> sick. <laughs> so there's a lot okay. to be said for, you know, letting your kids go outside and play in the dirt and let them build up their natural 
flora community, and it actually helps yeah. their immune system. Yeah, and a I lot of a lot babies of eat dirt when they're little. You know, they're crawling yeah. around and they get they're on the floor. They're right there. They're in the zone. Mm-hmm. And it's <laughs> it's almost like pies. they <laughs> it's almost like <laughs> they have this intuitive sense to pick up the microbes in their environment to start building their immune system when they're exposed to environmental toxins. I think it also has to do with a uh, a decrease in breastfeeding as well because there's so many different um, uh, immune factors that are transferred through the breast milk. Um, a lot of the, um, the, the immune factors like the IgA, IgG, all that kind of stuff, um, it all gets transferred through the breast milk to the, the, the child. So, um, you know, if you're not breastfeeding, the, the child isn't getting any, that the child's immune system isn't getting any of that information. So, um, I think I think that has a lot to do with it as well as why why we're seeing kids with such messed up immune systems. Well, and especially and the first right after they're born, the 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 first two days isn't even really breast milk; it's like colostrum, yeah. which is just yeah. all those good microbes. Mm-hmm. And there is, you know, having gone through it, like it's, it can be a touch and go situation if the baby doesn't know how to latch on and, and mothers get frustrated. Mm -hmm. And if you're having a baby in a hospital, they're more prone to say, oh, it's okay. You don't need to breastfeed, Mm -hmm. you know, here, give the, and they try and even supplement, you know, or they say, oh, maybe you're not producing enough milk. I mean, there's all these things and there's an organization called the La Leche League, and I believe they're all over the world, mm. and they are in hospitals to kind of be the defense for breastfeeding, to stand between the doctor and the nurses and the mom and say, no, it's okay. I mean, you just got to give the mom and the baby time to adapt. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. And also linking back to the autoimmune disease epidemic that we have nowadays, it also has to do with what we eat, including mom, you know, what does mom eat? Mm-hmm. It reminds me of the concept of leaky gut, which is basically like a, a standard thing to have when you have an autoimmune disease. If you, if, you, if you eat a lot of carbs, processed foods, GMOs, and heavy metals, vaccines, everything, you know, affecting your microbiome, your, the bacteria in your gut, and you have just overgrowth that just increases the permeability of your gut, and, you know, all the toxins just go straight to your tissues in the bloodstream, through the, bro- through the bloodstream, and it just triggers autoimmune disease, you know. Mm-hmm. Hell starts in the gut, literally. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. Well, well they found them. Too about, uh... Oh, go, go ahead, Tiff, please. No, I was just going to bring up autism. Um mm. There was a study where they uh, they were going to test uh, autistic kids and give like one group of kids a placebo and give the other kids probiotics. And they they researchers had noticed previously that autistic kids have high levels of clostridia, which is a bad microbe in their guts. So they went about this study and they had to stop it early because. Uh, the mothers in the study noticed such a strong change in their child's behavior and concentration uh, that they, you know, they didn't want to stop the kids from taking a probiotic. And they knew just from the kids' behavior that they were taking something that was working. So they had to stop That's the cute. study. 
Yeah. That's pretty dramatic. Does that suggest that probiotics could actually help with symptoms of autism? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Like I'm a, I'm a lay person, but you know, it seems from, from what I hear, uh, autism is, is, uh, not, not promoted necessarily, but, um, what I was going to say is promoted as, uh, something which is, you know, uh, if not irreversible, like deeply entrenched mm-hmm. and largely mm-hmm. untreatable. Like you basically learn how to live with that condition. Uh, you don't try mm-hmm. to reverse it. And I think that the idea that you could actually reverse uh, symptoms of, of autism would be pretty dramatic to most people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, average per- the average person thinks that autism is just uh, exclusively, you know, a neurological disease, you know, and mm-hmm. it is actually very, you know, uh, very common uh, to have children with autism with serious digestive issues. This was why mm-hmm. Andrew Wakefield, which he's a digestive specialist, this is how he came, he came on board on the research of uh, autism and its link with the vaccines, you know, MMR vaccine. Because uh, uh, a mother, parents, you know, actually called him and told him, but my 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 child who has autism, he has serious digestive issues. There's got to be a link here. You know? hmm. I think there were several thousand parents that contacted him over the years, right? With the same issue. Yeah. And that's, he talks about that in the movie Vaxxed. That mm-hmm. he wasn't interested in autism at all until he started to see the relationship with the gut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of hard for people to get their heads around sometimes because, you know, we, we're, we're so conditioned to think of, of all these different systems in our body being very exclusive. Like, you know, it's either a digestive issue or it's a neurological issue or it's, you know, a bone condition or whatever. And so it's, it's sometimes difficult to hear things like, you know, probiotics might help with depression or they might help with autism or any number of different things, you know, mood disorders. And, you know, because everybody's like, well, what does the gut have to do with the brain? Like, what is, how do those two things connect? But, you know, what more and more research is starting to find is that the, the microbiota in the digestive system is in constant communication with, um, the neurological system through the vagus nerve. So it's actually, you know, there's this vagus nerve that runs all the way down from your brain into all your viscera. And basically, the communi- there's a communication constantly going on between all the different uh, microbes in the gut and the brain. So, um, yeah, I mean, it is, it is kind of uh, difficult to get your head around at some point, but uh, the, the new research is really showing there's a very strong connection there. Actually, actually even uh, mainstream medicine was speculating that Parkinson's disease may be caused by a stomach pathogen entering the brain mm-hmm. via the vagus nerve, you know. <laughs> so yeah. something as a neuro- neurodegenerative disease, that you will never make a connection. Actually, there is a connection. Yeah. And they know that um, the uh, bacteria in your gut are actually responsible for creating a lot of uh, neuropeptides. Um, different uh, uh, substrates that your body kind of uses to communicate things. So like things like serotonin or GABA, you know, all these things that are um, used by the neurological system to communicate. The gut actually creates a lot of those, the, the, the bacteria. So, you know, having a proper balance of um, bacteria in your gut is extremely important for things like mood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's something like 90% that- of the serotonin 
for your brain is created mm. in the gut. Yeah, yeah that, that's the thing. They have actually done research to measure like serotonin or GABA levels in the brain, and it has to do with supplementation of probiotics and what it does in your gut. And it is actually shown that, yes, you can create more GABA in your brain if you take um, a probiotic. And hmm. uh, it, because it is basically through the vagus nerve, the signals reaches your brain. It is not completely clear how, why, but yes, um, yeah. it is pretty sad. Uh, I have to let you know that the research <laughs> involves cutting the vagus nerve in some poor animals. Yeah. yeah. And th- that's how they knew that, yeah, the connection is through the vagus nerve because if the vagus nerve was not there, there will not be an increase in GABA and serotonin in the brain. Well, speaking of GABA and mm. serotonin and the gut, when I worked in the hospital, you know, constipation was a big, big issue. Like people be in the bed and it doesn't really lend to uh, gut motility and peristalsis. But on mm. psychiatric wards, there would be people that were just so, so anxious. It was mostly men, but they would just be just impossible to deal with. They were just so anxious and they're like, oh, there was so much stress around their pooping or not pooping like they would always be asking oh i'm so constipated you got to give me something oh help me please please you know it's just so much stress around pooping and eventually like when i gave them something to help them poop you could just tell like they calm down so much so having a nice (laughs) good bowel movement really does lend towards your mental health and then i'm sure like we didn't give probiotics in the hospital but if they have probiotics, that actually helps your gut motility. It helps mm-hmm. your the con- muscle contractions in your gut. So if you know if more people in hospitals were given probiotics, especially on psych wards, that would be an interesting experiment to run. Yeah, instead well, of using actually, the poor animals. <laughs> <laughs> there was actually a study that um, in one of the articles called "New Research: Probiotic Found in Breast Milk Benefits Nerve and Gut." calms digestive disorders and they were they were basically doing a a, a study on uh, a specific strain of uh, beneficial bacteria called lactobacillus ruteri and that one they did find actually really did affect gut motility Mm -hmm. so that would be one strain that would probably be very helpful for that yeah it actually calms down the nerve endings that's that's what the research said so it is especially helpful in people with ibs or where there is increased motility in the gut The connection with um, psychiatric illness is really quite interesting. Um, I know there's been a lot of research that links um, alterations in in gut bacteria to a variety of different psychiatric illnesses, such as, I mean, they go from clinical depression, anxiety, um, schizophrenia, you know, um, all of these different types of things have have been directly linked to to this alteration in the gut bacteria. Um, And there were some studies done in... Funnily enough, they were done in rats and mice, so I'm not entirely sure that they can be compared, but it's interesting nonetheless. Um, these, these studies, basically, they studied um, rats and mice that were raised in germ-free environments and compared them with rats and mice that were raised in their natural environment. And they found that the ones that were raised in a germ-free sterile environment had an altered level of production of something called 
brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Mm. And in human studies, um, brain-derived neurotrophic factor has been found to um, actually be implicated in all sorts of psychiatric illnesses, um, ranging from clinical depression, anxiety, um, even schizophrenia. And funnily enough, in the same study, um, I, I believe it was the same study, they found that the germ-free sterile mice also were found to have um, malfunctioning neurotransmitter receptors. And these were the M NMDA receptor and the 5-HT1A receptor. Funnily <laughs> enough, um, both of these are implicated in all sorts of psychiatric illnesses. Hmm. Um, so again, they, they were done on rodents, but they the results of that study may be able to be you know possibly compared to humans mm -hmm. <laughs> it is interesting because emily deans uh i think she's a psychiatrist or neurologist the, mm -hmm. um, very popular on the paleo on the paleo community and she went to a symposium you know um just this week i think and she wrote her summary for for psychology today we published the article this week and uh, she brought very interesting concepts in that, um, the psychiatric field. And they are finding out that, yes, um, sometimes animal models are not the same, uh, are not applicable for humans. You guys did a, a show on this recently. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what certain, uh, for example, mice, there's a certain species that responds very well to certain strains, but other species, they do not. So they don't know how to translate mm -hmm. everything to humans. So I think the, the most logical thing is for humans <laughs> to experiment <laughs> themselves. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yes. There was even, and, there was even and, one. And, Sorry, go ahead. No, and also like to recreate some of the concepts they're doing in the animal models. For example, um, Everybody thinks that, yes, good probiotics, so you have to take supplements. But in most of the good studies in animals, they're actually doing like enemas or, you know, putting in a direct solution with probiotics in the gut. It's not, it's not necessarily taking the, uh, the oral route, but it's the enemas, mm. actually. Mm. Well, I know it, I, I did my own experiment on this sort of by accident and i've i've talked about this on the show before so i don't mean to beat a dead horse but it's it's pertinent to the topic that when i uh at one point a couple of years ago stupidly overdid a detox protocol with uh oregano oil and i took too much and uh i have never in my entire life been more dark and depressed and hopeless mm. and all all of the bad things than when i completely wiped out my gut flora It was awful. Mm. Um, I, I can't say that I was suicidal, but I was like, you know, in that vein. And uh, the and on the other side, uh, when I realized what had happened and what I had done to myself and I started taking probiotics, I had never felt more elated and happy and enlightened <laughs> than when that started to come back. I mean, the change was just incredible. I was like, I feel normal. Holy crap. You know, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, Holy yeah. crap. Yeah. Yeah. Holy crap, <laughs> well, getting it, back it was, to the, uh, oh, sorry. I didn't realize. You no, were no, 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 I'm, I'm good. What were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say, uh, you know, um, just talking about how, how animal models aren't necessarily translatable to, to humans, even within, um, from, from rat, uh, studies, 
Um, I was reading in one of the articles here where they were talking about how they had a specific um, type of rat that was bred to be obese um, and predisposed to things like uh, diabetes, uh, metabolic disorder, that sort of thing. And they were finding in, in one lab that, the, the, that they were predisposed to this, but in another lab that was using the exact same species of rat, they, didn't, um, they weren't getting that effect at all. And when from studying the different rats, what they found was their microbiota was completely different. And so it just goes to show the power of having um, a different microbiota. Like even these rats who were bred to be, um, you know, sick in some way weren't because they had a healthier microbiota, assumingly healthier. So, yeah, it, it's like, you know, to try and translate something from a, a rat study to a human study is, you know, even like further away. Um, I mean, not to say that these are, are useless studies necessarily, but um, you really, I, I agree with Gabby. I think that, that really what you have to do is be studying these things on humans. One interesting concept that um, she brought up, it might be interesting for those who have very debilitating diseases and throughout the years have tried everything, changing their diet, taking supplements, including probiotics, and, you know, they actually, they don't improve. Uh, she says that basically when there is a trend, um, the concept was that when your microbiome, your bacteria actually kind of like invades your gut, it is too close to the intestinal wall, it can have a very, you know, detrimental effect in your health. And sometimes even given fiber actually makes things worse. So she was speculating that, yes, maybe in those cases, uh, it will be good to have antibiotics to just wipe everything out. Mm -hmm. And then just you can restart, you know, from zero, repopulate your flora. Kind of like mm -hmm. it reminds me of the testimonial of Jonathan, you know, he wiped everything mm -hmm. out. <laughs> yeah. Start from square one. Start from zero. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I found that fascinating too, Gabby. Yeah, I can't say I recommend it, though. I mean, honestly, that was a rough process. <laughs> but that, that that made me think of what Elliot was talking about with psychiatric illnesses. I mean, it makes sense. Uh, it's, you know, for me, that was a period of about a month. Uh, but, you know, if you had had that going on for years, mm -hmm. uh, you would think mm -hmm. you were crazy. You would feel mm -hmm. crazy. And you would be yeah. crazy. <laughs> and you would be crazy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting, I think, that uh, Emily Dean is talking about how maybe a more <clears throat> um, direct method of kind of seeding the, uh, the, the colon or the digestive tract is to actually do the, um, the probiotic enemas or fecal transplants. Because mm -hmm. I know that that's uh, something that's somewhat controversial. But I have to say, like, reading things like testimonials and stuff on it, it, it sounds like it's a much more efficient way of kind of seeding the digestive tract with the proper bacteria. Um, you know, taking probiotic pills is one thing, you know, I hear of mixed results with that. People will say, oh yeah, that didn't really do anything for me. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas kind of going from the other direction, so to speak, it seems like it's a, it's a much more effective way mm -hmm. of actually um, of doing that. She didn't specifically suggested probiotic enemas, Oh. But at least she put the concept out there that maybe sometimes in some cases antibiotics might be needed and then you start from zero, mm -hmm. like with a proper diet, taking probiotics. And she does report that, yes, uh, sometimes animal models will not be good for us humans, so we'll have to like keep experimenting. Yeah. So speaking of probiotics and the delivery method, 
there's been some debate, like if you were to take uh, oral pro- probiotics, I mean, there's been studies like that autism study, they were given probiotics orally. So, you know, it has some effect, but the timing or when you should take a probiotic, like there's been some debate, like you should only take it on an empty stomach when your stomach acid is not at its highest peak so it can survive the stomach acid and actually make it into your gut. And then other times you hear, like, uh, you should take it with food because, you know, that's how you typically get, you know, beneficial bacteria. It comes when you eat. So what do you guys think? Well, I did a um, a training with a guy who is considered one of the kind of most um, knowledgeable probiotic type experts out there. Now, mind you, he was working for a company. So, um, you know, I, you always have to be um, weary of what, what people are saying and where they're coming from. But on this, this particular topic, I don't think he really would have any reason to have a, a special interest in it. And what he was saying is that he had found through all the research that he had done that um, taking it with food was a better way to go. Um, and one of the reasons for that, he said, is that it actually helps the, um, the bacteria to survive the acid environment if they're in a solution that's kind of buffered with food. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like it protects the bacteria um, by being kind of in this mix with food. He did say there are certain conditions that you would want to um, do it on an empty stomach, particularly if you're trying to um, affect the, the bacterial environment of the stomach itself. But he said in most cases, what you're going to want to do is do it with food. Some manufacturers claim that, for example, lactobacillus rhabdosis, uh, it actually survives stomach acidity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also think but, it's important <laughs> just in what you're eating to be, especially mm-hmm. here in the United States, like food from your environment because you've got the, the microbes, you know, like uh, from if you have your own garden, you've got the environmental microbes on your mm-hmm. food. It's, it's kind of like that idea, you know, when people go to foreign countries and they drink the water and they get sick, but the people that live there can drink the water. It's like uh, that interrelationship between the microbes in your environment and your internal environment that makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah so trying you know as cliche as that eat local kind of idea is it's there's something definitely to that Mm -hmm. Uh, one thing is honey people you know not that honey is super good because of the sugar factor but for getting the different types of microbes in your environment eating honey from bees that are that are in your area Mm-hmm. And you have to consider that taking probiotics isn't the only way that you can get beneficial bacteria. There's you know, fermented foods, sauerkraut, mm-hmm. is that kimchi? Mm-hmm. I've never actually had that. <laughs> and then people oh, yeah. good. tout the benefits of yogurt. Not that I would recommend eating yogurt <laughs> because of uh, the casein and the, the you know it's a dairy product, but um. People have had pretty good success with that. And also, just for an, uh, an old wives' tale remedy, I've had uh, good success with yogurt uh, inserted vaginally, frozen. Like when my diet was pretty poor and I was eating a lot of sugar and gluten and all that, you are prone to vaginal yeast infections. So mm. not eating the yogurt, but taking it vaginally can actually restore your vaginal flora, and you don't have to, you know, take the big guns to 
you know, get rid of a, a yeast infection. Yeah. Well, it's an old German uh, German medicinal is to drink sauerkraut juice, um, you know, because then you're getting kind of a solution that has uh, a lot of the local um, bacteria um, kind of in, just in it. So by drinking it, I mean, they would, they would recommend that for almost everything from like digestive upset to, you know, colds and flus and all those sorts of things. They would say, you know, take, take sauerkraut juice. It was like uh, something prescribed by a doctor back in the day. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, sauerkraut, especially if you're fermenting it yourself is going to have all your, like the, the bacteria that you're, um, surrounded with all the time. So it's kind of like just, uh, like an inoculation. Yeah. It fights the bad bugs like helicobacter pylori. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and also all the processed foods that, that people eat, you know, from my understanding, it creates almost like a like a spackle in the intestines, so everything gets coated so your body can't absorb all those essential mm-hmm. nutrients. There's actually yeah. a paper uh, from last year published in Nature magazine that showed how even modest amounts of emulsifying agents Found yeah. practically in all processed foods, it damaged the microbiome and intestinal cells, mm-hmm. causing colitis. This was in mice, but I think yeah. it's pretty sensible to avoid that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All those industrial emulsifiers that they're using and all that um, processed food is just terrible. Well, it's interesting to to kind of note over the years how this whole idea of the microbiome has taken off. So in 2001, this guy Joshua Letterberg, he won a he's a Nobel Peace Prize biologist, but he actually coined the term uh, microbiome. And uh, if you were to do a Google search, you could come up with I mean hundreds and hundreds of articles. And one thing when doing research for this show that I found was that um, this whole microbiome concept and probiotics has kicked off a, a gold rush. So big food mm-hmm. companies, you know, the ones that make all those processed foods like Nestle, Pepsi, Monsanto, General Mills, they've actually funded gut bacteria studies and some have mm-hmm. opened centers to develop foods that interact with the microbiome, like, you know, Dannon's good yogurt. <laughs> but um, according to the transparency market research, the global probiotic market is expected to reach an astounding $45 billion by 2018. (laughs) And so uh, also the pharma companies are reaping the benefits of the microbiome boom. So this uh, organization called Genome partnered with Jensen. It's a pharmaceutical arm of Johnson and Johnson in 2003. And they began to, uh, uh, study drugs for a variety of diseases, inclu- including ulcerative colitis. Ulcerative colitis. But um, basically, they they received more than $10 million in 2013 from investors uh, who want to kind of find this pill that would allow patients the benefits of a fecal transplant without the gross factor. So we have to <laughs> be aware of the fact that, you know, these big pharma companies are, are paying attention to this whole idea of the market for your gut. Yeah. And big After food they as ruin well. it. I'm, 
Well, the thing, like the thing about the the what you are seeing in a lot of these kind of foods that are coming out that are like enriched with probiotics, they're basically just taking really crap food and adding probiotics to it. Mm-hmm. So it's like you know, if you want to take probiotics, just take probiotics. You know, eat some fermented foods, whatever. Like this whole idea that that you should, you can have like a candy bar that has probiotics in it and somehow it miraculously <laughs> becomes better for you. It's pretty ridiculous. It's the whole thing, like it's like the greenwashing thing, right? Like, you know, they take something and they put the word natural on it and suddenly it's good for you. Meanwhile, it's the same old processed crap you've been eating all your life. So it's, it's you know, it's just buyer beware on these kinds of things. You really have to, to watch out for this sort of thing. They will charge more for the food and that's it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And like Tiffany said, you know, they destroy it at birth and throughout childhood and all of a sudden they've got a magic bullet and, you know, they're going to come yeah. up with a, a big pharma pill that will clear what they caused in the first place or allegedly yeah. clear. Now this well, pill that I, they're I talking about, wonder, is, is this a like a poop pill? Oh, I don't know. It didn't say. <laughs> Well, I mean, can you imagine Big Pharma actually coming out with a pill that cured all these different diseases in like, you know, a couple of doses? I seriously doubt you're going to see that. Oh, we don't need our vaccines anymore. Guess what, guys? We've got this pill that actually corrects all these different disease states that we've been trying to come up with. You know, we've had like billions of dollars worth of profits in selling our medications and vaccines for. It's not going to happen. Like they might be researching this kind of thing, but you are not going to see that. There's just no way. Yeah, the the PR alone would be a nightmare, and not to <laughs> yeah. mention that they would that they would lose, you know, all those profits. You know, I I agree. I don't think they're going to do that. No, they'll find they'll do the research and then they'll bury it. That would be my guess, anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the most ineffective way to take probiotics, and which is also the most expensive way, is just to take it by oral route. I've never seen an, if any effect by taking probiotics throughout my life that was that I could say, "Wow, that was good." Could be an exception. <laughs> That's true. But when I did you know, probiotics enema, enemas, I really felt the difference. I really felt good. I literally, like the next day, I had you know less weight, less inflammatory weight, and my belly felt you know flat. You know. I could. I was not bloated. I was like, "Wow, this is great!" I had more energy, and I felt good. I really felt really good. So, do we, well, do we want like to get into? I'll oh, go ahead, Elliot. No, I was just going to say it seems like the direct introduction of probiotics and you know beneficial bacteria directly sort of into the into the colon and you know the the end of the intestine um, seems to have a, a much more beneficial effect. Like when I um, when I was reading the notes for this show, learning about a fecal transplant, that sounds. I don't know. I was kind of surprised that they actually do that. <laughs> I didn't understand how that might work, but I guess it's fairly simple, isn't it? You know, um, in the feces there are a number of beneficial bacteria that you poo out every single day, um, and for someone who's seriously depleted, or they've got a, um, a significant overgrowth of really non-beneficial bacteria then the introduction of 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 the, of the good stuff um i mean it, it seems to have some amazing effects like doug what what were you saying earlier about the the mother and the daughter oh yeah there was a case where um a mother um 
had a, a severe case of diarrhea and I guess they must have had an open-minded doctor or something. And she actually took a fecal transplant from her daughter. And oddly, the daughter was actually obese, whereas the mother wasn't. And within a few months, the mother had become obese. Mm. So that was, uh, yeah. So, I mean, that, that, I mean, it's only one case, obviously. So there might have been confounding factors, but it's pretty unbelievable. The idea that within a couple of months, by changing your microbiome, you could have that strong a physical reaction. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's been, there's been a number of cases where, um, you know, altered gut bacteria is, you know, closely associated with obesity. I'm not sure if any um, any of the studies or the researchers particularly state exactly what mechanism it is behind how an altered gut bacteria does cause um, obesity. And in, in the case that Doug just mentioned, I mean, that seemed like it was pretty rapid. Mm-hmm. You know, the a few months later and, and suddenly she's, she's obese. I mean, that's, that's more than chance or it seems so to me anyway. Um, and I'm sure there's, it's probably multifaceted, but I know of one mechanism that could probably contribute to that. And that is the gut bacteria's effect on leptin. So leptin is a hormone that the body basically uses to distribute energy and it distributes where you store your fat contents. Um, and, it turns out that certain bacteria um, in the bacterial membrane, they contain something called uh, lipopolysaccharides. So this is a bacterial toxin. Um, now, in the gut, when you've got this proliferation of, of this particular bacteria that houses these lipopolysaccharides, lipopolysaccharides. <laughs> uh, yeah, as, as you've got this in your gut, um, the, the, the increase in the LPS, as it's called, um, it's actually been shown to have a direct effect on the leptin levels within the serum. Um, and so as you get this LPS rise, you also get a, um, a rise in serum leptin, leptin levels. And this actually stimulates something called the SOCS3 signaling in the hypothalamus. So when this happens, it triggers the hypothalamus to actually um, downregulate the numbers of leptin receptors, and this causes leptin resistance. Mm-hmm. Now, when you get leptin resistance, um, it basically blunts the action of certain satiety hormones, which basically tell you when you're full and when you're not full, and it also lowers brain dopamine levels. Um, it, this is basically what causes the body to become obese via leptin resistance and the the direct effect of the um the lipopolysaccharides on the leptin um you know that can give us a sort of clear mechanism as to why altered gut bacteria is so important in maintaining a a healthy weight and there's also uh considering that the foods you eat sometimes feed the gut bacteria that you have so uh, we've all heard about like uh, candida infections. Like if you have an overgrowth of candida, you may have very strong carbohydrate and sugar cravings. So in this case where the mother became obese after getting the fecal transplant from her daughter, she might have uh, taken on some of that and, and you know, it might influence mm-hmm. what she ate. And after that, you know, maybe her eating got out of control and she put on weight. That could be another factor mm-hmm. in it. But we have a caller on the line. So let's try and take this call. Hello, caller. Are you there? Hey, I'm here. 
Hello, what's your name? You yeah. Hey, I'm Bobby. Hi, Bobby. Hello. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Bobby. Hey. What do you have to say? Well, I was uh, trying to get into it earlier in the chat room about a case my friend's going through right now. It's kind of relevant, but maybe not completely, but it does have to do with the GI tract and some issues he's having. Okay. Um, sure, go into it, yeah. So I guess we noticed it about two years ago. She started to stop having as much energy, and she was noticing some severe uh, discomfort in her stomach, kind of like that gut-wrenching need to have to go. And it just kind of got getting worse and worse, and it's pretty much something she would, like, live with daily. <laughs> and then uh, so she got checked out at the doctor, found out that she was pretty well backed up, and I think ended up getting a pass mirror and stuff around that time, too. And she's in about her mid-50s, so they were down there checking stuff out, um, got some feedback, but because she was still um, pretty well-toned for her age down there, they decided to do a deeper scrape to double check. And that's when they found the cervical cancer. And when the biopsies and everything came back, it was pretty much full blown. So she uh, ended up getting scheduled for a radical hysterectomy to get everything removed. And um, after that, the testing is good. There's no cancer cells, but <clears throat> she said she was fine for like the first few days after she got out of surgery. And her doctor pretty much said it was probably because she wasn't eating. And once she started resuming eating is when everything just started getting more compacted and backed up. Mm. So they got her on, uh, she did the initial, well, she did a cleanse before just in preparation of the biopsy and the surgery. And she seemed to be a little bit better for those that week. And then she uh, <clears throat> got prescribed to do like a mag citrate um, drink along with the uh, Gatorade Miralax mix to kind of flush again and start softening stool and get things going. And at present, she's pretty much just did that again the last weekend and is supposed to be doing like two capsules of Miralax a day for six months to try and soften everything and keep things flowing because she's probably so backed up and descended in there. Okay. Mm. Um, so that's kind of the point we're at right now, but I'm assuming there's probably a bit more going on than that. <laughs> I mean, there, yeah. there, there might have... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say that, yes, probably the gut flora, but the surgery itself, it's more than a radical hysterectomy. Um, they remove other things. I think it's a very radical, the surgery. So just well, from yeah, that, she can have a... Because she said, um, yeah, it was like the ovaries, the uterus, um, cervix, part of the vagina. Um, mm -hmm. I think she even said they got rid of some lymph nodes down there as well. Well, another thing about surgery is the, the pain medications. Anesthesia and the pain medication she was probably given afterwards, uh, they're notorious for causing like gut problems and severe constipation. So that was probably a factor in it too, I'm guessing. Probably. I mean, I think before the surgery, she was recommended some probiotics as well, in addition to try and help the situation. But mm. I mean, it just pretty much started getting progressively worse. And when they did go in for the biopsy and finally found the cervical thing, I mean, they were saying, you know, this thing takes about 10 years to become full blown like this. So she's like wondering how come it wasn't caught like every three or so years when she was going in for this and part of it probably could have been 
they just couldn't see it. And the doc's gut instinct said, I'm going to go deeper and grab another sample further in because you look fine from this position. But because they actually mm-hmm. went in and did that deeper scrape is when they actually found that she had the cancer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Since she already, she, she's already having uh, Microlax. Is it Microlax? Miralax. Uh, Miralax. Miralax uh, twice a day. I would, you know, if I was her, I would definitely try enemas to keep my bowels moving. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was thinking about that after you guys were talking about that. Yeah. You know, it doesn't even necessarily has to be like a daily probiotic enema. We actually experimenting with these right now, and I think that once in a while, good enough. But coffee enemas could, like, you know, be more done done more regularly to keep just the bowels clean, you know, mm-hmm. and the liver. Mm. How's your diet, too, Bobby? Mine or hers? <laughs> no, hers. Yeah, hers. <laughs> um. Well, I think she's found some kind of diabetic diet that she's trying to stick with because I think it runs in her family along with cancers. So um, I don't know if she's been officially diagnosed as diabetic yet, but she's working along a dietary recommendations that she's found on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've mentioned some of the things I've learned with her because she loves, you know, one of her go-to staple foods that she loves eating is like... Um, Beans and cottage cheese. <laughs> and mm. I'm like that. Oh, uh, beans are the worst thing you could be eating if yeah. you're having some gut, yeah. gut issues. Dairy. Yeah. That just yeah. feeds cancer, you know. Mm. And diabetic diets just on their face are really bad. They still I mean, the good thing is she doesn't eat much in the way of bread, a little bit mm. of pasta occasionally. So, I mean, I've tried to pass on some of the information I've learned from the show and from the site with ketogenic type stuff and how it could be potentially helpful for her. Mm-hmm. She said mm-hmm. even before when she was really young, um, she was on a ketogenic experiment because she's got some condition where I think she was born with uh, her meninges being bigger than usual. So she's always had this chronic like kind of migraine type things since she was younger. Mm-hmm. So I think that was like one of the things that she was on when she was younger and they tried working with her and trying to help that a little bit. I think it helped a little bit, but, I mean, then they put her on, like, a drug cocktail that was insane. Mm. And she wasn't seeing any result, and she wasn't wanting to deal with, like, taking 10 pills a day throughout the day. She's like, screw this. <laughs> I'm not doing that. I don't blame her. Yeah, I would give her information yeah, on uh, coffee enemas. And then if we can get into um, the the recipe... <laughs> <laughs> we want to talk about yeah. the actual mechanisms, like how you would do a probiotic enema. That might help her too. So, Gabby, if you want to get into actual the how-tos of the probiotics enema. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the recipe of today comes um, thanks to ProNutrix.net. And how do you do a probiotic enema? Well, it's very, very, very easy. <laughs> um Step first, um, fill a glass or bowl or bowl or, yes, a glass with one or two tablespoons of water. Step two, depending on your need, pop open two or three probiotic capsules. So is there, water and, yes. is there any special type of probiotic you should be using? I know people are going to want to know that. 
Yes, um, ideally has to have several different strains from Lactobacillus, but also uh, Bifidobacterium. Mm-hmm. And if you especially have problems with diarrhea, then Saccharomyces boulardii as well will be useful. And several species and in high concentrations in the millions. And uh, it is two or three probiotic capsules. Add them to the water and mix with a spoon. Crush and squash lumps against the side of the bowl or glass to form a smooth paste. Step three, add two more tablespoons of water. Stir again until the capsule dissolves. Set aside for at least eight hours. And so can you, get a, yes? can you open up the capsule or you just put the capsule in? No, you have to open it and okay. pour it in into the water, so into the water solution. Now, some probiotics they come in envelopes, and uh, so, but you want to use like two or three units as the first for the first time, and uh, to see how it goes. And then the step four: um, get a clean enema bag, pour in the probiotic mixture, and clamp the enema firmly into place. You shake the enema bag from time to time to keep the lumps from sinking on the bottom. And uh, it is advisable to do this probiotic enema in the morning. This is serious. I tried mine the first time in the night. I didn't slap very well. I was so energetic. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Prepare the mixture the night before. This is where you you do the step number three. And set aside overnight at room temperature. And preferably, if you have serious gut issues, use a disposable enema bag, which, uh, which has no rubber smell. Mm-hmm. And the disposable enema bag is thinner than the traditional ones. And it is especially helpful for people who have a very inflamed or sensitive rectum or hemorrhoids, you know. But don't get intimidated. Just like, you know, <laughs> do it. And when you retain the enema, they don't give the specific time, but I will think that at least 12 minutes is ideal because that's the time, you know, when things get subsurfed. Well, that's so it. So this is the recipe. Does it say anything about the temperature of the water? I'm, I'm guessing. Yes, it has to be room temperature or never too hot or yeah. not even cold unless you are cold adapted <laughs> ideally room temperature or a, a little bit warm this not you know this is going to your rectum so you cannot burn with it or like you know or jump because it's too cold you know so yeah ideally room temperature i'm guessing so that the letting it sit overnight is to kind of activate the probiotics you know because they're yeah. in stasis when they're in the pills right you usually keep them in the refrigerator yeah, he says that just leave it at room temperature. And uh, I think it's just to give time for everything to dissolve properly in the water. I did mine differently. I, ju- I used, um, well, instead of two or three capsules, I used four, you know, envelopes. Mine, mine came in envelopes. I warmed the water a little bit. And I used, instead of four tablespoons, I used actually... 400 cc of water because mm-hmm. I wanted the solution to go uh, higher up in my gut and not just the rectum. And um, I retained that for a lot of time, like 40 minutes. You know, I was reading a book and everything. I was like, okay, well. <laughs> <laughs> 
And it was great. That's the effect that I had the next day. Uh, my fat, uh, my, my belly was flat. I uh, didn't have, I was not bloated. I was energized. I was, you know, happy. It was like, this is great. You know? <laughs> should have tried this before. <laughs> and, so, yeah. so you should take it ideally in the morning after, like if you are a morning pooer, after you have your morning poo. <laughs> Yeah, you have to go to the toilet first to yeah. clean up everything, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. yes, and I noticed the energizing effect immediately. I was able to sleep, but I was like, you know, waking up like every two hours, kind of like a, following a melatonin cycle or some sort. And uh, I was tossing and turning. Um, it was, yes, I was very energized. So I, re- I really realized that this has to be done at least on the morning or in the afternoon, not before going to bed. Definitely not. Bobby, you were going to ask something, and I, I think I oh, cut just, you off there. Sorry. Yeah, just about that. Like, after you create the solution and let it sit for eight hours, should you just let it sit on the counter so it stays at room temperature so it would be ideally ready for you? And should you mm-hmm. cover it just to prevent anything from getting in there to affect the... Yeah, that's, that's a good idea. Cover it just to make sure that nothing else gets in there. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, make sure you use uh, distilled water or filter filtered water. You don't want to use like tap water there. <laughs> well, it sounds very interesting. And how how long, Gabby? Since you tried this, how long do you think that the? Uh, I mean, obviously the the benefits you know are are self evident, but how long did that effect kind of last for you, where you felt good and felt the beneficial effects from it? I think. There was a change that was permanent. I have to clarify that I'm doing a Lyme's disease protocol right now. It includes several antibiotics. So, yeah. But even though I'm taking antibiotics, the effect was not completely wiped out. For example, I can do like my to-do list for the day, and often I will struggle with it. But, you know, since I'm having these uh, probiotic enemas... I've been able to concentrate very well, even do more things that are on my to-do list. <laughs> keep going. Mm. And, yeah, uh, it was, the effects was not only on my health, but it was also mental health, concentration. It was really great. Mm-hmm. Cool. How, how long, if you're, let's say you're not necessarily on an antibiotic regimen, how, how often do you think you would do this? Like once a week, once a month? Oh, I will say like even once or twice, uh, once a month, you know. Some people yeah. are saying that maybe you just need one and that's it. If you have like good mm-hmm. effects and uh, the effects are sustained with time, so that's it. If you want, to, if you are constipated, then try a coffee enema instead. Sure. So you say for the average person, maybe uh, try it once and then give it about a month, you know, and see how you feel. Yeah, I think people will feel better like practically immediately and if those effects are sustained and they're not like you know you know and they're making efforts of having a good diet and they can experiment even with fermented foods now that they have good good bacteria that finally reached their gut mm-hmm. and uh, they will have better effects with other alternative alternative measures dietary supplements fermented foods yeah uh, just one wow. more question to did you find that, uh, did it have any adverse, I guess adverse is a relative term, but any effect on your, you know, stool movement? Like, did you, did you poop more? Did you, uh, my, did you my stool movements, or? my stool movements after that were more frequent and smoother. 
you know, it was like, wow, I'm going to the toilet like every time I eat practically. <laughs> but it was yeah. not diarrhea. I mean, it was like good, you know, feel good. <laughs> That's good. And, uh, and well, and yes, I did a, a huge cycle of antibiotics and I realized, yes, maybe I will do my probiotic and I'm again afterwards. I was wondering if that infusion might, for somebody who has probiotics for a while, might actually cause diarrhea for a day or two. Uh, I read you know, testimonials. Of- yes, I read testimonials of people who did a probiotic enema, and it was really bad afterwards. And this is, this is people that have Crohn's disease mm. or ulcerative colitis. I do imagine that it was kind of some sort of detox effect or some, like, reaction. And right. uh, that's why they recommend, okay, use the disposable enema bug. Start with two capsules and not more. I think there are some people using even up to six probiotic capsules. They're more courageous or they know more about their... But it is true that there is some troubleshooting here. In fact, in this same um, article, what I got the recipe may cause deep blurs in the anus, may cause blood flakes in the stool, discomfort and painful reactions. So these are kind of the adverse effects that some people had, but... From what I read, these people have like serious issues, like Crohn's disease and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, for um, certain people, so- um, if they're doing a probiotic enema, but they also want to do coffee enemas, should they just stick with the probiotic enemas until everything starts to feel like it's back on track, and then go to a coffee enema if they want to do general detox? Because it seems like I think. Yeah, that's a good point. But I think I will start the other way around. Like, yeah. if you know you're very sick and you're full of toxins, I think you you will want to start with the coffee enemas to start to your you know, to detoxify. But other measures as well, like the saunas that we have a show about, that are pretty good. Dietary measures. You know, you want to try other stuff first. But if you ever need probiotics, for me, it makes sense to do it as an enema. You know. Because you're sure that it's going to reach where it has to reach. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, in the event that um, someone was severely constipated and they um, undertook the probiotic and coffee enemas and that didn't seem to work, um, would you recommend, alongside magnesium, would you recommend maybe high-dose vitamin C just to sort of flush everything out? I think it will be pretty rare because even you know when you see the natural progression of things even in mainstream medicine or anything it's like the last measure the emergency emergency measure is usually the enema like people take um solutions like microlax or something else or they try even fiber which is and ends up being worse <laughs> but they try pretty much everything and when nothing has ever worked, then comes the enema. Even people that come into the emergency room, that they have to be disobstructed manually, so to speak, like grandpas <laughs> that are, you know, uh, bedridden for long periods of time, like their poop actually blocks the exit, you know, it becomes mm-hmm. like a stone solidified. And uh, what they're given first is uh, an enema, or sometimes, you know, they have to be. Uh, disinfected manually. Mm. That's always fun. <laughs> <laughs> I've done it. Well, yeah, people are too. very relieved after that. So, <laughs> so did you get all that, Bobby? That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was uh, partially wondering just 
it would probably be better to do the enema first before, because I'm sure she needs to take some probiotics to um, increase her gut flora again, especially after that major surgery and it probably wiping everything out. Mm-hmm. So would it be best to start with the enema and then work with integration through oral or vice versa? She, she's very constipated. I think she will find a lot of relief with the enema. She could even try the coffee enema first to clean herself a little bit. And they recommend to you. You will see the recipe for the coffee enema in the article. We put it in the chat. Erica put it in the chat. And um, the recipe, the standard recipe calls for like four tablespoons of coffee. I think she should start with one. Mm-hmm. Because it can, it- the, ver- the very first one can be very... Very um, uh, uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, because there's a yeah. lot of toxins released from the liver, and you know, in general, like coffee enemas really do work for detox. And the first one can really like, yeah, the detox reaction can cause you a lot of cramps. So maybe just start with one tablespoon, at least. Was that the uh, link to the article you guys carried not too long ago on SOT for the coffee enema? So. Yeah, it's the same one. Yeah, it was higher up in the chat. Yeah, because she doesn't really drink coffee, but I heard it it doesn't quite affect you quite the same with the enema as opposed to ingestion. So, Yeah, Yeah, it's it's totally different. The coffee enema goes through a different uh, blood circulation, the liver gut circulation, which is called enteropathic circulation, and it's just different. I know people who drink coffee, and they will have palpitations. Mm -hmm. They will have cardiac arrhythmias. But if we do a coffee enema, nothing will happen. Yeah. I think important to note, too, with the coffee enema, to get very good coffee. Uh, you know, make sure that it's organic. Make sure that it's a, as fresh as you can find because a lot of coffee is actually uh, contaminated with um, aflatoxins uh, because it sits for so long. So it's yeah, very think- good to find, uh, you know, recently, recently made uh, organic coffee. Let yeah, you grind it, so, yeah, you don't want to get Folgers something. crystals. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's something about the, the level of the roast has an effect on it, too, from what I remember. Yeah, so just the best organic coffee you can find. Mm-hmm. It's a standard treatment for cancer therapy. This is something that Gerson uh, uh, Institute, you know, popularized coffee enemas for cancer therapy. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, anything Bob, else you want to add, Bobby? Calling, I mean, yeah, uh, no, because not really. Just kind of wanted to touch on that case, I guess, and see what I could work with. Okay, well, yeah, good luck to your relief. friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We hope that she, she went through a lot. The... Mm-hmm. I would say definitely share the. I was. Just, I would definitely share the information with her about the uh, the enemas and the probiotic enemas. You know, going and also. Um, I mean, obviously, you don't want to be like pushy, but uh, I would. I would reshare the information with her about the ketogenic diet. Uh, you know, especially considering that she had advanced cancer uh, and that she just had this recent surgery. Um, maybe not hammer right into it, but do a, a careful transition into a into a full keto diet. I, I, you know, I'm not a doctor, so I want a disclaimer that, but I, I can't imagine that it would, uh, that it would not help. Hmm. Yeah. We, we'll all have this urge to help. And your friend, she had basically the most radical surgery available 
she had that. So she can do with all the help <laughs> she can get. Mm. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, that's all, I guess. <laughs> all right. Thanks for calling in, Bobby. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Bobby. Thanks, Bobby. Okay. Bye. Bye, Bobby. Bye. Okay. All right. Well, there's some good information there. Yeah. I have some. Uh, I have some great dophilus in the fridge. Maybe I'm going to try this probiotic enema. Yeah. <laughs> Let us know next time how it went. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should just do like the month of poop. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it'll be poop that right, you well, can be uh, proud of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just don't take pictures. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, well, I think that we've uh, we've covered the topic fairly well for today. Do you guys want to go to the pet health segment? Sure, that would be very interesting. This is probiotics and your pets. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya, and today I would like to talk to you about probiotics for pets. By now, thanks to my radio comrades, you are well versed on the topic and on the benefits of probiotics for our health. But what about pets? Well, they are no different. In fact, mainstream veterinary practices has been using probiotics for years now. Veterinarians use beneficial bacteria not only to treat the patients with gastrointestinal disorders, but also as immune system support for puppies, kittens, and aging pets. Veterinarians are also aware that 60 to 80 percent of the body's immune system lies in the digestive tract. This means that GI function uh, has influence on the immune system and how it reacts. A healthy GI tract will help an animal fight disease, so keeping his balance of healthy bacteria alive is an important part of overall wellness. Just to recap, probiotics are friendly strains of bacteria that maintain healthy levels of good bacteria in your pet's GI tract and also defend against opportunistic, potentially pathogenic or bad bacteria. The digestive tract is the largest immune organ in your pet's body and yours. Believe it or not, your dog or cat has even more intestinal bacteria than you do, despite uh, their much smaller size. The GI tract of companion animals also designed to handle a tremendous bacterial load, bacteria that would, like, would quite likely develop into a life-threatening infection if found elsewhere in your dog's or cat's body. A healthy population of friendly bacteria keeps your pet's immune system in good working order. If the balance of bad to good intestinal bugs gets out of whack, uh, your dog or cat will eventually develop GI symptoms and an increased susceptibility to illness. Studies demonstrate animals raised without friendly bacteria in the gut or with a poor balance of good to bad gut bacteria are at dramatically increased risk of developing disease. So why healthy balance of gut bacteria is important? When your dogs or cats' gastrointestinal bacteria are in balance with the right amount and type of healthy bugs on board, there is symbiosis. Good things happen inside your pet's body. For example, 
vitamins are made, vegetable fiber is processed as it should be, and unfriendly bacteria are kept in check, and toxins are well managed. When unfriendly pathogenic bacteria take over your pet's digestive system, it creates dysbiosis, which is more or less the opposite of symbiosis. Dysbiosis results in increased permeability or leakiness of the intestinal wall, which means your pet's GI tract will be less able to allow healthy bacteria and nutrients in and keep disease-causing bacteria out. A healthy GI tract is selective about what is absorbed. Nutrients are taken in a non-nutritive uh, substances, including toxins, are filtered out. And that's why it's important to supplement with probiotics. But as it usually works in our world, if mainstream veterinarians and as a result also major pet food uh, manufacturers has gotten into the probiotics business in a big way, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good thing. As usual, pet food companies use the growing interest in probiotics by pet owners and veterinarians to create food formulas containing substandard, essentially useless probiotic additives. Then, of course, the marketing people get busy positioning those new and improved formulas in such a way that consumers believe they are providing high-quality probiotics uh, conveniently contained in the food they serve their dog or cat. In fact, some of the very pet food giants responsible for the poorest quality diets available, formulas that have largely contributed to the compromised health of millions of companion animals, are the same ones now leading the industry's charge to get probiotic-related pet products to market. So what are things that you need to keep in mind before choosing what probiotics to give to a pet? First, avoid using human probiotics on, on dogs and cats. And don't use processed pet foods with probiotic additives. Probiotic formulas uh, used by humans uh, were developed specifically to fortify the bacterial species found in the human GI tract. Pets have specific strains of bacteria unique to them, so they need a unique probiotic. Your dog or cat must have organisms derived from its own species for best uh, results. You probably won't harm your pet uh, by offering human probiotics, but, but you aren't providing as much benefit as you would, would be by offering a species-appropriate product. The bacteria in the probiotic must be alive and able to reproduce in order for it to be beneficial. Tests on dog foods claiming to contain probiotic microorganisms showed that a manufacturing process kills too many of the live bacteria, rendering the probiotic effect useless by the time the food is packaged and shipped. A pet probiotic should have the following qualities. It must not cause disease, despite the fact that it contains bacteria. It must survive the acidic environment of your pet's stomach. It must contain enough live organisms to colonize the intestines. It must contain the correct strain of bacteria, beneficial for pets, not people. It should remain stable under normal storage conditions. And it should be easy to give to your dog or cat. If all those conditions are maintained, your pet will benefit greatly from such a supplementation. Well, this is it for today. Wish you a great weekend and goodbye. Those goats have some good bacteria.
I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> well, I feel like that was a good show today. And uh, so I think, I guess we should wrap it up. Uh, we're at a good time here. So before participating in the chat uh, and for listening. And thanks, Bobby, for calling in. Uh, we really hope that your friend is able to uh, feel better and are sorry that she's uh, going through such a, a drastic experience. Um, hopefully that can be a catalyst for some, some healing. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, we encourage everybody to listen to the SOT Radio Show on uh, Sunday at noon Eastern Standard Time. And if you're in a different time zone, just go to radio.sot.net on Sunday and you'll see the, the airtime uh, in your local time zone on that, on that page. Um, and, uh, and that's it for today. So we will see you next week. Okay. <laughs> Bye everybody. See you. Bye guys. Goodbye. Everyone. Have a nice week. <laughs> <laughs>